So again, James is saying, um, he's saying it's possible that you might profess faith without actually possessing a real living faith. Um, James is saying in this section that a living faith changes things. A living faith will change you. Um, A living faith will fundamentally reorient your life. Um, Just think with me about a few stories that you can find in the Gospels. Um, There's this one story of a man named Zacchaeus. Um, Maybe if you grew up in the church, maybe you sung a song about him when you were a little kid. But he was a thieving tax collector, right? He had just been ripping people off for his own personal benefit. But when he came to Jesus... When he finally came to Jesus and put his faith in Jesus, his life was radically and fundamentally reoriented, right? So much so that he went back to the people he had stolen all this money from and were told that he paid them back four times the amount that he had taken, right? He had been radically reoriented from a person consumed with himself and what he could get to a person who was now radically generous to people's needs. Um, there's another story in the Gospels um, about a prostitute. Um, and it doesn't take much to imagine um, what kind of wounds she carried with her, what kind of humiliation and shame um, was a part of her life. But when she put her faith in Jesus, and she found His grace. Her life was upended and totally reoriented, right? To the degree that she walked into a party and interrupted a party that was filled with the day's social and cultural and religious elite. And she interrupted that party to anoint Jesus and to wipe His feet with her hair and with her tears. I mean, don't you think she knew that people in that room would be whispering about her and looking down on her? But she was free. She was free to lavishly express her love for Jesus without caring about what anyone else in the room thought. Or you think about somebody like the Apostle Paul, right? I mean, he hated Jesus. And he hated Jesus' followers. To the extent that he was rounding Christians up to imprison them and to put them to death. But then he met Jesus and put his faith in Jesus and it radically reoriented his life, right? From persecuting the church to planting churches all over the place. From from imprisoning believers to being imprisoned himself for his fellow believers and, um, and suffering for them. You know, this, I know this isn't how I normally start a sermon, but... I want you to see that though these stories that we get in the Bible, the the ones I share may be dramatic. The Bible is, is filled with illustrations of what James is talking about in James chapter 2. Which is that to possess a real living and saving faith will change you. It will reorient your whole life. See, I think, I think all of us, Christian or not this morning, um, that when we are caught in our most sober moments 
of reflection about our lives. We long for the hope of change. We want our lives to breathe meaning and purpose and joy. We, want for, we long for our lives to be captivated by a beauty that is so deep and so true that it pulls us into its orbit and totally reorients our lives. And I know some of us and some of you in this room, you've probably grown hard and you've grown cynical. You know, I, I say something like that and we kind of inwardly roll our eyes and we think, yeah, nobody really changes that much, actually. Um, but I think our cynicism, it, it's just further proof that deep down, this is actually what we really want. To know that we can be changed at the deepest, most profound and substantive places of our lives. So my encouragement to you is to listen to James because he wants us to consider this morning this living faith that can come in and reorient our lives. So I want us to talk about this living faith in three points. Here they are. I want us to talk about the nature of a living faith. And then second, I want us to talk about the proof or proofs of a living faith. And then last, I want us to talk about the way to a living faith. So the nature of, the proof of, and the way to a living faith. First, the nature of a living faith. <clears throat> the Apostle Paul, um, an, another ri- uh, biblical writer um, and character, a contemporary and a friend of James, he wrote in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, this, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. That's Paul. Paul is saying, you cannot be saved by your works. You cannot work your way into a right standing with God. And that's the gospel. Because Paul is saying it is purely grace. We're justified. We're declared to be in right standing with God. Not by doing anything, but simply by trusting in Jesus. Right? In Jesus who paid every one of our debts on the cross... And in Jesus who credits us with every bit of his perfect life and righteousness. We know, Paul wrote, that a person is not justified by works. Now listen to James' main point, which is in verse 24. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So here's the deal. James is brilliant. Right? He, he, he's a rhetorical genius because he is going out of his way to sound just like Paul and he is going out of his way to sound like he's contradicting Paul. And it's brilliant because when you read the, those two verses together from Paul and from James, it makes you think, wait, what? What did James just say? That doesn't sound right. Um, and it's brilliant. As one commentator writes, James is being mischievous with his language and his choice of language. He's making sure we're paying attention. He wants us keyed into um, so that we can be thinking carefully about the nature of a living faith. And so he uses this important word, justified. 
And he emphasized a second meaning of that word, right? For Paul, justified meant to be declared righteous through faith in Jesus. But the word justify can also mean to prove or to demonstrate. Um, I I was terrible in math when I was growing up. And so I, I particularly hated teachers who would give you a test and then they would say something like, you need to justify your answers, right? Because that teacher was saying, show me your work on the piece of paper, Um, which was hard for me because I just wanted to guess. Um, If I showed my work, it would prove that I didn't understand any of this math stuff um, or how to solve this problem. James says a person is justified by works, verse 18. He says, show me your faith apart from works. And I will show you my faith by my works. What is he saying? He's saying, give me evidence. Give me proof that you possess a living faith. Because listen, the nature of a living faith is that it cannot be hidden. It's in view. It's evidential, right? You and I, and listen, you and I need what James is doing here for us. Because what he's doing is he's coming in and he's giving us a three-dimensional understanding of the nature of saving faith. We have to have Paul's understanding of God's grace that comes apart from our works. But we also need James, who understood that a living faith, it always and naturally expresses itself and proves its presence. I I don't know if they still make these or not, but... See if some of you remember this. They, when you get, got football cards or baseball cards in those little packs, sometimes they would have these three-dimensional football cards. Um, and it seems like this was also a prize in Cracker Jacks boxes. I, I don't know if anybody does eats those anymore. But, you know, these little cards that you pulled out and had a 3D image on it that you could look at. And, um, and you remember these cards, they... They felt different than the other cards, right? They had a little texture on them if you rubbed your finger across them. Um, There were really tiny ridges in the cards. And this is probably way more than you ever wanted to know about this. But but this is a special kind of printing called lenticular printing, right? And here's what it does. Lenticular printing, it plays a trick on your mind. And it takes advantage of the fact that your left eye and your right eye work together to help you perceive depth. Your eyes perceive depth, right? Because when you're looking at an object, uh, your left eye and your right eye are seeing that same object, but from ever so slightly a different perspective and angle. So those cards, they use those angles, uh, the angles of those ridges to play tricks on your eyes so that you'll see it as three-dimensional. And here's what I'm saying. James is helping us see the gospel three-dimensionally, to see it with some depth perception. And it's brilliant because he isn't contradicting anything that Paul would say. He wants you to see that the nature of a living faith is that it always gets worked out in your life, that it gets demonstrated in your life. It's proven, and it can be seen in lives that are radically reoriented. So second, let's talk about the proof of this living faith. Okay, What are the proofs that will be evident in our lives if we actually possess this living faith? Um, Another high school 
uh, class, um, chemistry. Um, it, most of us learned in our chemistry class, or maybe it was a lab, I guess, um, we learned that very simple litmus test. Do you remember that? Where it, you would use either a, a red strip of, uh, or a blue strip of litmus paper to test the acidity and the alkalinity of a solution, right? So a blue piece of litmus paper, it would turn red if the solution was acidic, and a red piece of litmus paper would turn blue if the solution was alkaline or basic, right? Uh, James is giving us a passage um, in, in this passage, a litmus test as proof of a living faith. And so James gives us two primary proofs. Um, and they both have to deal with reoriented relationships, really reoriented friendships. Um, so first, James says, real friendship with the poor and with the needy is a proof of living faith. See where James starts in verse 15? He writes, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. I think what he's saying is pretty plain, but, uh, but let's talk about it. And I'm going to put it positively. A living faith, James is saying, proves itself in real, tangible, costly, sacrificial deeds of mercy for the poor and the needy. A living faith shows itself in a unique friendship with the poor and the needy. It's more than just vacuous words. Be warmed and be filled. It actually does something and it gets its hands dirty. A living faith, James is telling us, befriends the poor and the needy at cost and risk to self. Down at the bottom of the passage in verse 25, James mentioned the example of Rahab, the prostitute from the Old Testament. May or may not be a familiar story to you, but you can find it in Judges chapter 2, God's people, the Israelites, were getting ready to go into the promised land. And they were coming into the promised land. And so the, the first city that they came to was the city of Jericho. And they, they sent spies ahead of them into Jericho, uh, where Rahab lived. And she believed in the God of the Israelites. Um, and so what? What difference did it make? When these spies were in need, she met that need at great risk to herself. And she hid these spies. Now, <clears throat> listen, that's it. A living faith proves itself in the way it befriends the poor and the needy. And I wish I could spend a lot more time on this. But do you know why a living faith reorients you towards friendships with the poor and needy? I think it's this. It's because to see the poor and needy And to look into their faces is for us to look into the clearest mirror we have ever looked into in our lives. A living faith knows you are spiritually and morally bankrupt and in poverty. So when you get into the presence of people who are actually poor, whose lives are actually messed up all over the place, and they're broken, you begin to stop seeing the differences 
And you start seeing the similarities. Because I think James would say, if you have a living faith, you will find more and more that you can relate to the poor and the needy and the broken better than you can relate to anyone else in your life. And because we're, we're, we're reoriented towards friendship with the poor, we find ways, James is saying, to meet basic needs of clothes and, and, and food and protection, a living faith. We'll take risks with our time, with our money, with our reputations, and so on, to meet the very felt needs of brokenness. That's the first litmus test that James gives us. Um, Living faith proves itself in reoriented friendships with the poor. The second proof that James gives us is a reoriented relationship and friendship with God Himself. There are some chilling words in verses 18 through 19 of this passage. James wrote, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. James says, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Just let this sink in just for a moment. Um, You believe God is one, James says. And that's a signal that James is talking about those who have an orthodox, correct, and right theology about God. And James says, if you got that, great, wonderful. That qualifies you to be a demon, right? I mean, the demons are fallen angels, right? They've got a theological education, that's for sure better than anyone in this room has. Right? They know God is one. Heck, they, they know the Trinity way better than you understand it. And I understand it. I mean, they know there is one God in three persons. They believe in Jesus. They believe Jesus died on the cross and was raised from the dead. They were there and they saw it. They believe in Jesus. But listen, James says... Demons don't just believe in God. They fear Him. They shudder. That is, they have a fear and a respect for God and His power that genuinely affects their behavior. And they shudder in His presence. A friend of mine, Michael Keller, points out that these are the two things that most, most of the people today think about Christianity. One, to be a Christian, you need to believe in God. And two, you need to be scared of punishment and therefore live a good life. And James is saying, that's not a living faith. James says, that faith is dead. It's useless, James wrote in verse 20. And that's chilling And that's a call towards self-examination. Because who do you think James is calling out here in this passage? He's calling out the moral and the religious who have all the right answers and all the right theology and who avoid sin in their lives. Why do they avoid sin? Because they are terrified of God and punishment. Listen, in her story... Wise Blood, short story, Flannery O'Connor wrote about one of her characters 
There was already a deep, black, wordless conviction in him that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. James is saying, you can learn great theology and you can be shuddering and doing the right things just to avoid Jesus because you're really afraid of him. And it's in the example of Abraham and Isaac that James shows us a living faith that's reconciled to God and reoriented to friendship with God. I'm just going to give you the brief version of Abraham and Isaac's story from Genesis. Abraham was an old man, right? When God called Abraham to faith out of his idolatry and to follow him. And God made promises to Abraham as an old man. And among those promises was a promise that he would have a son, right? Years and years went by. But God delivered on that promise and he gave Abraham a son named Isaac. And then when Isaac was a young man, God told Abraham, go up this mountain and offer your son, your only son, as a sacrifice on an altar. And so Abraham went up this mountain and he took Isaac and he built a wooden altar and he bound his son and laid him on the altar and he took a knife And he raised his hand to slay his son. And God stopped him just before his hand fell. Why did God stop Abraham's hand? You can read this on your own in Genesis chapter 2 where God said Abraham's actions were proof that Abraham loved and trusted God. The author of Hebrews gives us some insight and tells us Abraham was willing to offer up his only son Isaac because he reasoned that God was even able to raise him from the dead. So James says, Abraham was called a friend of God, verse 23. And here's what I think James was getting at. Abraham's life was totally reoriented From a fear of God to friendship with God. I mean, you think about it. Abraham had to be so convinced of God's love that even when he couldn't, there was no way he could understand it. He knew that no matter what God asked of him, it could only be because of God's love for him. He was convinced of God's love for him. And it led to his obedience and his submission. Years ago, I had to go to Greenville, South Carolina uh, for a week of meetings for our denomination. And, um, and we decided on this particular week that our whole family would go. Um, and So on a Tuesday, which is actually important to this story, um, we drove all the way to Greenville, South Carolina with our whole family. And we got there, and we were tired, and we were exhausted, and we were angry at each other, uh, you know, for being in our space, and cranky, and all that kind of stuff, and we just wanted to get into the hotel, and eat dinner, and go to sleep. So while Jennifer, we pulled up to the hotel on that Tuesday evening, um, and uh, 
So Jennifer and the kids unloaded our car while I went inside um, to, uh, to check on our reservation and check into the hotel. And I was told by the desk that um, a reservation had been canceled um, and the hotel was full. See, here, and here's what happened. I had made all these reservations months ago, right? And um, I made the reservation for Monday through Thursday, not Tuesday through Thursday. And here's the kicker, the real kicker. One week earlier, my wife Jennifer told me that she really thought we were supposed to be there on Monday and I should check my schedule. And I told her, no, no, I know what I'm talking about. Just trust me, right? Everything starts on Tuesday. So while Jennifer was unpacking, I, I scrambled to call every single hotel in Greenville. Um, and it was looking like there was no room in the inn for the turquoise. Um, so finally, I found the last hotel room in Greenville, which was a, a handicap room in some very shady hotel. And, um, and so all, I got the hotel room, and, and then came the hard part. <laughs> I had to tell Jennifer, who, who had just unpacked the car, um, explain what happened, and I think this is just a natural reaction. I apologized, I owned it, I took responsibility for it, and then I braced myself, uh, right, <laughs> for the wrath that was sure to fly, or some version of, I told you so. Um, you know, how could you? But neither came. She just said, well, it's okay. And we started packing up, right? And I, I was thinking, it, you, and you might think, that was awfully nice of her. Um, I was thinking, she's way too calm. Um, <laughs> you know, she's got ice in her veins. Something's not right. She's waiting for us to get outside of the lobby here so there are no witnesses or something like that. And um, so I got, got in the car after we packed it up. We're driving to the hotel. I apologize again. Nothing. It's okay. I forgive you. And then I drove us up to our um, luxurious <laughs> one-star hotel, um, half-star hotel maybe. Um, I apologized again when we saw it. And again, she said, it's really okay. She still hadn't fooled me. She's waiting till we get up into that room and we walk in the room. It's a handicap room, so the bathroom is bigger than the place where the bed is. You can't even walk around the bed. Um, so tight in there. And we've got, there's six of us in there with that one bed. Um, and I'm like, now I'm going to get it. I apologize again. She said, I forgive you. It's okay. And I remember, I still remember my feeling. I was freaked out. I, I felt so uncomfortable about the whole thing. Right? I wasn't happy. And it took a day for it to sink in for me. Um, I, I was freaked out because she wasn't mad at me. I was freaked out because she forgave me and set me free. Right? When I finally figured it out, you know, I bent over backwards that week to make sure she had a great week. Right? Not to earn her love. Not to pay for my sin. Because she had already forgiven me. 
She had convinced me that I had her love unconditionally. And it totally reoriented the way I related to her. James is using Abraham to say, a living faith proves itself in actions and behaviors that aren't driven by fear, but that are driven by the wonder of God's love for you and His grace for you. Now, I've got, I've got to move on to get, to get us to the last point, but I'll just ask you this question. Is the wonder of God's love for you reorienting your friendships? Reorienting your friendship with God? Reorienting your friendship with the poor and the needy? Because these are the litmus tests that James gives us for a living faith. What do these litmus tests say to you about the kind of faith you have? Is your faith dead? Are you feeling like it's grown stagnant? Or do you have a living faith? Okay, finally, let's talk briefly about the way to a living faith. Um, I'm going to try to put this in a James-esque manner of speaking. I think you would be very proud of this. Um, Here it is. We know that no one is really saved by faith. You get that, right? You know that no one is saved by faith, right? It's true. We are saved by Jesus who died on the cross for us and was raised from the dead for us. Faith just unites us to Jesus, but it is Jesus who saves us. Listen, the way to living faith is to come to Jesus and to be captivated by the beauty of His love for you so much so that it pulls you into His orbit and it reorients everything in your life around it. You know, the illustration of this captivating beauty of the gospel, it's actually in our passage. And it's because Abraham and Isaac's story, right, it's a pointer to that beauty. Abraham was told to go up on this mountain and offer his only beloved son, but Abraham's hand was stayed before he unleashed it to end his son's life, to slay his only son. Abraham was just a pointer. He was just a hint. It was foreshadowing. Foreshadowing another father and another son because God led His only son, His beloved son, up another mountain. But God did more than just offer His only beloved son. His son was bound and fastened with nails to a wooden altar, to a cross. And when God lifted His hand, To unleash His wrath for your sin and mine, there was no one to stay His hand. And His hand fell and struck His only Son in your place and mine. Ultimate love for you. Ultimate sacrifice. Ultimate beauty. The way to a living faith, James would say, is to come to Jesus. To come to Him and find yourself captivated by His beauty and compelled to change. I think I may have mentioned this guy before, but I can't remember. Um, Rainier Rilke was a famous Austrian poet, 19th, 20th century. And one day, he went to a museum and he sat in front of a Greek statue of Apollo. 
All day long, he sat in front of the statue, just mesmerized and captivated by its beauty. You know, the flawless attention to detail and intricacies and the masterful artistry and all that. And being a poet, of course, he reflected on this and he wrote a poem. And the very last line of that very brief poem reads this. The searing gaze, talking about the gaze of Apollo, the searing gaze that penetrates your soul and compels you to change. He's saying, and this is the whole poem, truly captivating beauty, it pulls you in and it compels you to change. Your life cannot be the same anymore. It radically reorients your life. And that is such a lesser beauty than Jesus. The way to living faith is to come before the beauty of Jesus, sacrificial love for you, and to bask in the delight of His delighting in you. That will change you. That will reorient your life. Let me end with one final comment here about the way to a living faith. And it is my hope that this is somewhat pastoral for some of you in this room. Because I think that was James' intention throughout this passage. But maybe especially in the very final verse of the passage. See, it may be that you really do have this living faith that we're talking about. But it also may be true that right now, it feels very, very distant to you. Maybe like it's gone cold in your life. Um, Maybe it feels like I'm just, I feel like I'm just going through the motions right now. And, um, and it feels flat and it feels stale. And the beauty of Jesus doesn't seem to be radiating within your heart or animating your life to any great degree. And if that's true, I've been there before. And I think lots of you in this room have been there before. So how does James attempt to pastor us? Verse 26, he says, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now, you may have to go home and read this over several times to really get what he's saying, to get his analogy. Because I know that I have read this passage dozens and dozens and dozens of times. And I never saw it until I was studying this week. But in this analogy, James is saying that faith is like the body and works are like the spirit. It's pretty much the exact opposite of how I would have put it. James is saying your faith is like the body and what animates it, what makes that faith come alive are works of mercy to the poor and the needy and works of loving obedience to God your Father. That's what makes your faith come alive. So so let me ask you some questions. When is the last time you can remember yourself getting close to the poor and the needy just to serve them? When is the last time You changed your spending to give generously to others. When is the last time you adjusted your schedule 
to build friendships with the poor and with the needy. When is the last time you did something just because you love Jesus and for no other reason? When is the last time you stopped doing something just because you love Jesus and for no other reason? See, James is saying, if you're a believer, it's in the doing of those things that you'll find your faith radiating and being animated and coming to life again. It's in the doing of those things that you rediscover the captivating beauty and wonder of God's love for you in Jesus. Let's pray together.